Le porghe la chiamo che schieva di Roma, idio le crio, stringiamo e corta e siamo pronti alle morte, siamo pronti alle morte, l'Italia chiamo, stringiamo a corta, siamo pronti alle morte, siamo pronti morte, l'Italia chiamo, sì! Welcome! <laughs> episode four in my beautiful rendition of Fratelli d'Italia, the Italian national anthem. I'm, of course, Josh Burton. And, of course, joining me again today on the other side of things, Mr. Peyton, jo- Peyton Burton joins us yet again for episode number four. We are brought to you today yet again by our good friends from Starlage Custom Meats in Seymour, Indiana. Peyton, the reason I start off with Fratelli d'Italia is of course, since the last time we recorded from episode three, Italy, the Italians rule Europe once again for the first time since, God, it's been a while, um, since 1968, I think is when it was. I mean, it's been a, it's been a good while. Our second uh, only Euros, by the way, but regardless, for the first time since 2006, really, the Italians are back on top of world football. I know it's the Europeans, but I mean, they say Europe is the toughest um, continent as far as footballing goes. So in my case, um, or in my opinion, the Italians are back on top of football. Peyton, welcome to the show today. I, I'm obviously you can tell in my voice, I'm a little excited. We're seven days out from what just happened. And Fratelli d'Italia, l'Italia chiamo, which means um, I've, enough of the Italian I've taken. Chiamo or amo or any version that means love. So basically it means I lo- we love Italy, I love Italy. See, So uh, what a damn run that was. How fun was that? Listen, guys, I don't speak Italian. I don't take Italian courses to learn it, to learn the language. Maybe I will eventually, but as of right now, I only speak one language and that's English. Um, so I don't speak Italian, but all that means little translation is it's common Rome. Yeah, it's Forza it's, Forza Donnarumma. Oh, Forza Gigio. How about that? We're gonna get on to that here in just a minute. But you're absolutely right. It's coming Rome. We told everybody about it, but Nucci and company told everybody about it. And when we left off with you guys in episode three, we were getting we were one day away from the final from the matchup between Italy and England in Wembley Stadium, England's backyard, 75,000 screaming maniacs going crazy for the three Lions. Peyton, obviously, we know Italy won, but let's get to how they got there. Let's jump right into the Euro 2020 final from last Sunday. I was so nervous. Like, we threw a party. I knew we would. We had the Italian food. We were decked out in our Azzurri blue. We were cheering on the Ross, or the, not the Rossoneri, but the Azzurri 
um, you know, Fratelli Italia, we, we did the whole serenade with them. But let's be honest, that start was a dreamland start. If you would have, as an uh, English fan, if you would have said, what would be your absolute ideal start? It would, they would have said, we'll, we'll score in the first five minutes. And I'll be damned if not their first two or three possessions. Because if I remember right, the first possession, we pressed them and they kicked out of bounds. But then we gave up possession. And their real first attacking kind of counterattack possession, Peyton, Harry Kane dropped back as a false nine, dropped completely on the other side of the um, – basically helping out his defense. He was almost in like a center midfield role. And he picked up the ball, a couple dribbles, made a beautiful – cross field play over and I forget who it was that made the assist um, um hold on I'm gonna find it it was to uh Calvin Phil or Karrion Trippier yeah there we go. I mean he played, played this crazy false nine whips the ball over real, real quick and Italy I don't know if we were shell-shocked I don't know what happened but we didn't close down Trippier had all day to whip out a cross he found uh Luke Shaw which is their fullback freaking far post he hits it a beautiful one time you got to give credit to a fullback on a shot like that a beautiful one time zips it past Donnarumma near post uh it actually hit off the post too Donnarumma yeah. had he had no chance he had no shot at that and he was still there position wise but two minutes in England's up one nil and I'm like oh my fucking god what a dream if you were England if you were Gareth Southgate if you were a fan of three lions that was the absolute dream start because that stadium erupted after that. Yeah. Um, got, if you listen to last episode when we previewed this game, we really previewed the semis and because we knew, I think at the time we was recording Italy on one, but we hadn't talked about the England game because they still hadn't played the match yet. But we knew there was probably going to be Denmark and we knew it was probably going to be Italy versus England in the finals. So we started previewing that game early on. But I mentioned it. I had some questions. I asked Josh whenever we recorded last week how Italy has yet to trail this whole tournament. They've yet to been down. Every game in the knockout stage and the group stages up until this final, they've striked early. And uh, I was quite, I was interesting and to see if what happens if England gets one early. What happens if England's go up? whether it's first half or second half. And God be known, I got my wish. They scored, I think, the second minute mark. The two, second a second minute, minute yeah. mark, yeah. Luke Shaw hit that goal or hit that beautiful first-time touch off of uh, Maguire or Trippier's uh, cross to him. Nobody closed out. It hit the post. Even if it didn't hit the post, it was still probably going in. No chance Donald Wimmer was saving that. And uh, England, England's fans went nuts, as they should, because it's in Wembley. And England was up one now at the first two minute mark. I'm still trying to figure out. I don't. I don't think it was Benucci or Chiellini's fault per se. It was more or less on um, Emerson. On yeah, it's a I think jobs. Emerson didn't close down. Why we didn't put pressure on Trippier, I'll never understand. Because yeah, was he in the box or at the edge of it? Of course. But you still got to close down or things like that happen. I mean, this is a competent, very competent squad. And Luke Shaw, credit to him. He's been under a lot of scrutiny over the last couple of years, both at the club and country level. People say his weight and everything, which is absurd, by the way. He's a tank. And he's, he's had a tremendous tournament. And he won times that off of a beautiful volley, great cross, and he found the back of the net. Two minutes in, England won, Italy nothing. 
here's where everything went wrong, in my opinion, for England that we're going to spend a couple minutes talking about. For the first 20 minutes, including that goal, England looked like they were on the front foot somewhat. Like when they'd have counterattacks, you know, Sterling's pace was ridiculous. It really put a lot of pressure on Italy's back line, stretched them out, Harry Kane, right? But then from then on, Italy got their footing. Here's the vital mistake England made. I understand Southgate has worked. They've been the best defensive team this whole tournament. They've only conceded the one goal. They, you know, they go, you know, park, park the, not necessarily park the bus, but they close up shop. They played five in the back in this match, by the way. Yeah. They abandoned their four-two-three-one and went to a five in the back. So they had wing backs plus three center backs. And I, I guarantee you, Southgate got nervous. He was excited because they got the lead so early, but he was nervous because now the pressure's on that don't screw this up. Don't bottle this, as the, our friends across the pond would say. And instead of putting the pressure on Italy, because obviously the Italians were shell-shocked, they were rocked, you could have went for the haymaker early. If you go up 2-0 before halftime, that game is probably over, especially with five in the back and the way England plays defensively. But instead, the once, the biggest strength Italy has over everybody not named Spain in this competition is the world-class midfield. And you allowed Italy to basically recover from the haymaker not get knocked out in the dominate possession. And I'm talking about domination. It was at the end of the first half. I think the possession was like 71-29 in favor of the Italians. And Italy, of course, as the half went on, and Italy just, or England just played back. They played two lines of five and didn't really try to attack. They had their occasional moments with Sterling leaking out, trying to play the ball back and hit him on a counter. But – Italy found their footing by knocking the ball around, being patient. Chiesa had a couple opportunities in the first half to break open the steal of the England defense and missed a couple wide. Um, Immobile was shit again. We'll talk about that. But they let Italy basically get back in. Peyton, that's like a fighter. We're going to re review everything that happened to UFC 264 later on the show, as we promised last episode when we were talking with Tyler. But that's like in a fight, man. If you got your competitor on the ropes and he's dazed and he can't see or she can't see, you don't give them time to recover and get their bearings about them. You go no. for the jugular. Yeah. You go for the jugular. And England just, they got happy at the 1-0. They thought they would, you know, close up shop. And they allowed the best midfield in the world, as far as the country level goes, find their footing. You allowed Benucci and Chiellini to actually come up and be a part of the attack as well and press everything up, and you allowed Italy to get their footing. Even though it went in halftime 1-0, still England's way, anybody who's seen this and knows football or knows sports in general could see Italy at some point, if it continued like this, was going to break through. Here's why I don't like five in the back. I don't like running five in the back um, on FIFA, and I don't like it. And luckily, none of my teams, Real Madrid or Portugal, has ever won five in the back, thank God. But I, I just don't understand it. Unless if you're so worried about the other team's attacking side that you want to close shop. But really, they had the best defense. They only gave up one goal in the whole Euro tournament. And they was running four in the back, I'm pretty sure. Until this game, they all of a sudden switched to five in the back. 
Um, I don't understand it. It allows your midfield to get dominated. Verratti, uh, Giorgino, and Barella for Italy dominated that midfield in this game, especially after they scored the goal. They held possession and got some opportunities to score. And yeah, England was up one nail going into halftime. Everybody was happy. I But I knew Italy was going to at least get one back. I knew it. Just the way Italy was playing, the way England was like, okay, we got that goal. Now let's play not to lose instead of playing to win. And Southgate, I'll get on him. I'll get on his ass in a little bit when we talk about that penalty shootout because he pissed me off. I do not like him at all. Yeah. Yeah. So it comes out and we, you know, Mancini has obviously been credited and he, he showed to me, he showed he was by far the better manager, not only in this match, but he's probably the best manager of the whole tournament. Um, he knew that uh, yet again, Immobile shit the bed as a number nine. So he has the options. We've seen Belotti come on. You have Raspadori, the youngster, as a number nine option. But he went completely different. England's staying the five in the back. In the second half, he subs off Immobile, brings on Domenico Berardi, who obviously plays on the right wing. But they stuck Lorenzo Insigne in the middle as like a false nine. And there early on, they went with, Berardi, Insigne, Chiesa, three wingers who gives England a completely different look in the back line because they're all interchangeable. They're all cutting in and out. They don't stay in the center of the park all the time. They'll come out to the ball. They'll drop deep if need to be, and everybody else replaces. It's almost like having three freaking point guards in at the same time that can all shoot. Yeah. And it, it took its toll on England. Berardi cutting off the right, Insigne starting on the left, going into the middle of the false nine, Chiesa moving around. Italy had shot after shot a couple times. And then finally, in I think, what, the 70th minute, 71st minute, um, there was a corner, there was a set piece, a corner. Ball's whipped in. Verratti gets his head on it, does a beautiful job just keeping the ball alive. And then there's the, there's the old man. There's the the vocal leader of the squad Benucci beat his man to the punch and got the rebound stuck it in the back of the net right by um right by uh, Pickford. Pickford thank you I was, couldn't think of his name Pickford and then now it's one all and you could just see and feel the emotion in Wembley Stadium I've since watched videos of people that was at the match and the whole unless you're that small section of the Italian fans that whole stadium just drained because they knew they had 29 minutes left to go, and now it's 1-1, and they've completely bottled the lead. It, it'll, I mean, Mancini deserves all the credit because even me, I'm thinking, man, if that's fine, take Immobile off, but we need that number nine. We need a true goal. He said, watch this, and he went with three attacking interchangeable wingers, basically, that could all go through the center and weave in and out and make plays and come back and help, and it, it, it gave – England such a weird look that the goal was inevitable. Uh, what a beautiful, beautiful uh, adjustment by Mancini. At first, like, at first when he bought on Berardi for Mobile, I did not like it at all. I was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Like, why are you taking a striker out and putting a winger in and basically having three wingers in your attacking line? It just made no sense to me. But then again, after the match, obviously it worked. And I thought about it for a couple days. And I was like, that's actually really smart because – Italy really doesn't have a true number nine anyways. So it wasn't really a big deal because Immobile, he's been shit this whole tournament. Belotti's been, I mean, he hasn't been bad, but 
he's not he's still not like a like a Balotelli ass. He's not scoring goals crazy. He's not score a goal scoring machine. So Italy really doesn't have a true number nine anyway. So why not take that risk and take a chance and see if it works? And it definitely worked. It gave England problems. Um, Haley Maguire, Luke Shaw, and every one of them they gave them problems on the back line. Uh, Pickford, he's been pretty impressive so far in this tournament, but he is prone to make some mistakes. I wouldn't really say that was a mistake on his part. No. The Vardy shot, because he saved the Vardy shot. He saved it. It's just Bonucci was there for the rebound, put it in the back of the net, and then now we're 1-1. They scored, like, what, 80th minute mark? Or 79th minute mark? Uh, or was it uh, a little bit before I, that? I think it was around, like, 71, 70, 71, I think. Um, and, and, by the way, when Bonucci put that in the back of the net, how fucking wild did we go in the house that we were oh, all yeah. watching? Yeah. Um, that was crazy. Cool. By the way, we've said it all tournaments since we've been doing this show, Peyton. And I know he plays for Juve, but I don't give a shit. I am number one on the Frederico Chiesa bandwagon. He, he put on a show in every match he played. But did you see what he was doing in England before he had to be subbed off because he was injured? I mean, he created those early opportunities where he would like, they were so concerned with him, Stones and Maguire and everybody else, that he just kept dribbling past them. And they would dive because they think he's going to shoot, and he'd just keep his dribble alive. He'd keep his dribble <clears> alive. <throat> he put so much pressure on your defense. What a talent. What a talent Frederico Chiesa is. Yeah, and Juventus has pretty much said that they're just not getting rid of him at all. And I don't blame him, really. I mean, he was a fantastic player. He had a good season last season for Juve. Um, but this season, even though he got injured and had to come off, I, I think, well, did he come off before the he, goal scored or was it after? It was uh, after. I have it, it right here. And Benucci, he scored at the 67-minute mark, so I was incorrect. But, yeah, he came off at the 86-minute mark. for Bernadeschi came in for him. But, yeah, until he got injured, he was dominating, really, England, creating opportunities. And eventually we knew that um, he, was just, he was just a fantastic player all year, this whole tournament. Group stage and knockout stages, but especially in the knockout stages, he was and, impressive. And so Italy, like I said, they score, they get the equalizer and that whole win of that stadium because you could just, you know them fans are like, fuck, here we go. Um, England, to their credit, late, they did try to go win it because obviously they didn't want to go to extra time. They had a great opportunity there in the 94th minute. Um, and I let me, who was that? Oh, Calvin Phillips. He got a ball, I think if I remember right, it was off a set piece that was deflected, and he had – England got the reco or recovery back, whipped it across, and he took a one-timer off his left foot. It ended up going wide uh, in Aruma, yeah. but in real time, I thought, damn, that's a great shot. Like, I thought that was – so, but they, they went for it. Italy kind of shut them down, essentially, so we go to extra time. Extra time looked more the same. It, England actually, I think, if my opinion, kind of dominated the extra time. But it wasn't nothing crazy trying to, like, really put pressure forward because they still had in the back of their mind that, hey, we might get counterattacked here. And so it ends all 1-1. We go to PK. Before we go to the magical PK, it's going to settle the Euros here. Any thoughts on uh, interregulation, extra time, substitutions? Um, this is your chance, if you want to, to go in on Southgate. Because I, I know, well, I'm or gonna, do you want to wait till after the peak? No, I want to wait because I am going to pretty much bury him all I want because he pissed me off a lot. And uh, I'll just wait to get onto. I mean, the substitutions, I mean, Jordan Henderson, he came on like 74 minute mark. I thought that was actually a good chance. But uh, and then subbed him right back off. 
And then, well, actually, a couple of substitutions that came out of the 120th. Oh, you did some of them off. That's what you cut. The 120 the 120th mark, Jane Sancho and Marcus Rashford came, Rashford came right at the 120 minute mark just for, because obviously they were, everybody knew that was going to go in a penalty shootout. So that he bought those two one. Um, I'll wait. I'll well, he didn't, he didn't make his subs until late. He didn't bring in Saka until late in the match. He didn't bring on Grealish until extra time. He let Mount play that long, not being effective. And he let because when Grealish came on, Grealish had some good moments. He's the one that caused um, uh, people up in arms about Jorginho that they thought that could have been a red card. It, I, let me tell you this, especially English fans. I understand because you're lost, you're upset. But that wasn't a red card. He didn't do it intentionally. He stepped on the fucking ball. Oh, he yeah. I know what you're about, yeah. He slipped and his stud, yeah, he stabbed right into, <clears throat> um, into Grealish's leg. I'm sure that's painful and all that. But it was not intentional. They both met the ball at the same time. Yeah, even I think his name is Mark Clattenburg, even though he even he said like that wasn't intentional at all. Like he hit the ball first and it just slipped and hit him. So yeah, that's not I think it definitely should have been a yellow card, even though it was an accident, but it went no chance in hell was that a red card anywhere. So no, so they can get over it. But his subs, he waited so long. And we're talking about Mancini. I know the losing team normally subs first because you have to bring in it, I get that. But even after the game was tied. Um, he made subs. Yeah, we know Chiesa was injured, so that was a forced hand one. But he also, he brings in Velotti, right? He brings on a number nine. He brings in Florenzi for Emerson. Uh, Cristante for Burella. Um, but you look at Southgate in England, we've mentioned all these subs. He brings on Jordan, Jordan Henderson, then subs him off for Rashford and, uh, <coughs> and uh, uh Oh, shit, I cannot think of his name. Rashford and Sancho. Sancho, sorry, I was looking at something. But here's the thing. They purposely held out until they got on and the whistle blew for penalties. They got to make, like, one trip or a half a trip up and down the pitch. Their their legs, they only had warm-up time on the side. They were not any in-game situations to get them ready. And this is going to play into factor in the penalty shootout, but why would you sub somebody on that late with a, especially if you know you're going to penalties, wouldn't you want to get them at least three, four, five minutes, get the, you know, some in-game stuff built up? Yeah. Put them in cold for the biggest moment of their damn life. I would never try to do that. The funniest moment of this whole game was came at the 96 minute mark. Saka or I think it was Saka, um, cleanly fucked up. There was like a ball that went over his head. And instead of just like kicking it towards Italy's side or whatever, he let the ball bounce. And Saka, he's very fast. He's very young. He's very elusive. He stole the ball from Chiellini and had pretty much wide open space. It was like the like pretty much close to like the half line, um, close to the middle of the pitch, towards towards like the right side. Um, fucking, he drew, he went right past Chiellini. Chiellini just stuck his fucking arm out and pulled oh, yeah. his ass down. Yeah, he horse collared him. England fans, I think, to this day, hate Chiellini for that. They were pissed, and he got a yellow card for that. And I know yeah. everybody's saying he probably should have got a red, but, like, that was wild. He was like, no, uh you ain't scoring. I'm doing anything possible to make sure you didn't score. And, and uh, transparency, 
if they, that would have been a red card, it probably would have been deserved because it, yeah. it was obvious. It was a blatant pull. But at the same time, if you're Chiellini, that's a better move. He knew he closed down too hard. Sacco is way younger, more um, pacey, had, was going to blow by him and was going to put his team. He just said, fuck it. He, he pulled a, almost a Luis Suarez in the 2014 World Cup or 2010, 2010 World Cup, except for it wasn't in the, you know, inside the box where penalty would be given. But they did what they got to do. They gave their team a chance. They made the officials have to make a call. And it is what it is. So. Well, I think talking about Suarez, because he did, does, he is legendary for a couple moments in the World Cup. But I don't know if it was 2010 World Cup or when it was. But um, I think it was in the knockout stage because they ended up going to penalty shootouts. They, I don't know who they was playing, Ghana or someone. I don't know who they yeah, was playing. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, where he threw, his, he threw his arm up on purpose. Yeah. Off a goal. He fucking, I, I, and they ended up going to win the penalty shootout. They did, yeah. And he was watching, he didn't go off the pitch. He was in the tunnel watching them. And as soon as uh, they stopped, uh, the goalkeeper stopped to save or something like that. I don't know what he did. He went out there and touched in with them. I thought that was, that was funny. Got to do yep. what you got to do sometimes, I guess. But yeah. But here we are. We go into penalty shootouts, Peyton. As like last time, Italy win their last match against Spain. They win the toss. They elect to be in the, the prime position in this match, shooting first to put all the pressure back on England. And England got to pick the side. They pick the side with the most English fans. So the stage is set. All the marbles comes down to penalty shootouts. Up steps Domenico Berardi. He puts it in the back of the net. Italy goes up 1-0. England's first shooter is their best striker, which yep. I know you're going to question this a little bit. I understand. But he pulled of Messi, went first, and it paid off. Donnarumma guessed the right way, by the way. Donnarumma guessed right, and he just carry, or Harry put too much on it. So we're one off. Things get interesting now. Andrea Bellotti steps up for Italy. I don't know what the fuck he was doing on his shot, but he essentially shot it. He, he telegraphed it. Pickford does all this weird jumping up and down to try to get in the shooter's head, and he's back and forth. He is like a real-life FIFA game, like when somebody's in a penalty. And, like, all he needed to do was do the fake Ole with, like, a, a, you know, a yeah. flag. Yeah. But um, Bilotti shot at bottom right – or, you know, his bottom right, and Pickford's left, and Pickford timed it, got down there. Place goes nuts because now the, the favorite is back on England. Harry Maguire steps up. He put a beautiful shot. <coughs> past on the oh, line. nobody was saving that. Top right, pacey, um, smacked the camera in the, the corner of the goal. Yeah. And keep in mind, Maguire is a center back. He's a tremendous center back, by the way. He, he's mm-hmm. a really good center back. England, uh, their fans, I know they were starting to drum it up. It's coming home. They're up 2-1. They've got the momentum. They've got the favorite now on their side. So let's see how Italy responds. Benucci steps up. He hardly ever misses penalties. Calm, cool, right down the center. Pickford guessed right. He goes down the middle. It's 2-2. Here's where things fall apart for England. Here's where everything falls apart. You remember we just said a couple minutes ago, Marcus Rashford, subbed on, had no minutes, basically. No time to get warm. Young man, all the talent in the world, plays for a great club in Manchester United. He steps up. He did try to do the Neymar hesitation, double step, pause, every trick in the world, except he forgot to put it in the back of the net. He hits the post, the bottom post. Yeah. He doesn't come anywhere close to the net net. Now the momentum swings back to Italy. It's 2-2. We're coming up on the fourth shot. We're after three shots. It's 2-2, a miss a piece. 
Federico Bernadeschi. He's had a tough time last couple of years at club level for Juventus. He's had a good tournament. He he buries one. Pickford had no chance. He went down the middle too, if I remember right. Or maybe he'd been at top left. I know he put a lot of pace on it and Pickford wasn't getting it. Now England or Italy's up 3-2. Jaden Sancho, just like Marcus Rashford, Peyton. Remember, he comes on. No time to get going. <laughs> Tremendous talent from Borussia Dortmund. We've put him over so far in this tournament. He's getting ready to be a Manchester United guy. All he's got to do is find the back of the net, and he can be, you know, a, a nation, our national hero. He steps up, goes right. Zuzio done the room of proving why he's the best goalkeeper in the entire fucking world. Gets down, blocks it. Now, Italy's one shot away from taking home the European title. Up steps the man. The legend at penalty kick, Giorgino, arguably could be a Ballon d'Or winner, by the way, too. Hope so. Uh, Member Peyton, cold as ice against Spain in Spain's tournament. He cold. steps up. All he had to do is go the same way. He tried yeah. the opposite way, and that if he had just went the same thing he did against Spain, Italy wins. Instead, he tried to go the opposite way. I think he outthought it. I think he thought that Pickford would know that and go. Pickford guessed right. Great stop by him. I, Jordan Pickford did all he could in this shootout, by the way. I, I give him a lot of credit. Jorginho clubs it up. So now it's still 3-2, but England's got a chance, and the pressure back on Italy. Yeah, hold on real quick. Okay. After Pickford saved that Jorginho shot, I thought it was over for Italy. I thought England was going to score and England was going to end up winning this. This whole this whole time I was going back and forth. I still pick predicted England to win the game. You know, went to penalty kicks. I still thought England was going to win. And even this whole penalty shootout, I thought England was going to win. As soon as Pickford saved that Georgino shot and the whole England fans was going wild and Wembley, I thought it was over for Italy. I was like, damn, they had the chance. They blew it. And uh, yeah, the fifth penalty ticket came out. And I seen who it was. At the time, I didn't really realize how young he was. I knew yeah. he was young, but he's pretty much a damn teenager at this point. He's not even really a grown adult yet. He's only but 19. He's only 19. But, yeah, go ahead and then do your so, shit, and I'll do mine. So, up for the chance to send this off to six shots. Keep England's hopes alive of bringing it home. First major title since 1966 steps up, as Peyton mentioned, the youngster, Bukayo Saka. He's had a good tournament. He's a young, explosive, fast, talented uh, talent that plays in the Arsenal rank. He steps up. You could see it on his face. He wanted no part of that. He goes the exact same route of Jaden Sancho. Bottom right, the man, Gigi Donnarumma, said, not today, son. Got down, blocked it with ease, and he made that look so easy. And he hesitated for a second. Because he even said, I had to, to stop and think, make sure it, you know, we won. Italy brings it Rome for the first time since 1968. The Italians go into Wembley, a place where Italy or England has never lost a major competition. Take down the three Lions, run their national record up to 35 matches unbeaten. Peyton, and I, you, you can vouch for me before you go all in on everything. I got up and screamed, and credit to our dad, too. He got up and screamed, too. 
Um, he was happy. He's been getting into it. We talked about in episode one how he's a button or you know a fan that's on the rise. But I got up. I was so happy. I had tears in my eyes. I screamed. I cheered. It's the first time one of my teams have won a title since Kentucky did in 2012. But first time Italy's done anything. We've had this long hard road after winning the World Cup 15 years ago, not making the past World Cup early, you know, not making all the group stages of the last couple World Cups before that, getting blown out in the European Championship in 2012, everything. I'm so proud of the Italians, man. And I said it, I know, at least until I get our DNA test back, as far as I know, we have no Italian in us. But ever since I've been six, seven years old, been obsessed with it, I always say I'm pseudo-Italian. I'm hoping that our DNA test comes back that we do have some Italian blood in us, but I was just so proud. I consider myself Italian-American. So I, I just, I'm so proud, man. The Azuri made me proud. I was overcome with emotion. I told you guys when we were down 1-0, I just wanted us to shut that crowd up. We needed a goal. We got it. And then we played our ass off. It was a bad first 15, 20 minutes. But ev- from then on, they calmed down. The Azuri is back on top of world football, Peyton, and it feels so good Uh, I'll let you go on that and then I want to kind of wrap this up with a couple other things it feels so good to be back on top is it my time is it my time now my time Sean okay so real quick I just want to start off with this congrats Italy they deserved it happy they won happy for you that you finally got to see your team win because even though in 2006 they won the World Cup uh you was what were you a sophomore in high school then because you graduated Uh, in 2008 yeah, well, junior. yeah, it was my junior year. Going into your junior, okay, well, junior year. Um, were you a fan back then? Because I know we didn't, like, I go was. crazy I, back on I, soccer back then, obviously. I know I, I didn't. I was, but <clears throat> I wasn't. Into it like you are now? Right. I remember keeping up with it, and I was happy, but it did overcome me like it does now. Like, I always yeah. loved Italy, the nation. Yeah. And I, I rooted for the Italian sports teams because of it. And I, I don't know where that came from. But, yeah, I do remember Italy winning in 2006, and I was happy. I was like, oh, hey, that's, it was more of like, hey, that's cool, as opposed to, like, tears of my eyes, like, let's fucking go kind of deal. Yeah, okay. That's what I thought. So, yeah, congrats to you. Congrats to Italy. Congrats Benucci. Don Luma, he ended up winning the player of the tournament, as he should. He's been dominant this whole Euros. Definitely, in my opinion, and I think a lot of people's opinions might not be the best goalkeeper in the world, without a doubt. Um, That's what I was going to end up with, so you brought up just real quick, and I'll let you get right, Go ahead, go ahead. But no matter what happened, and he, he just released, he took some time after the Euros a couple days ago. He released a well-written, thought-out, <laughs> it depends on how you look at it, but basically he explained that the Rossoneri grew up, that he'll always root for Milan, he'll always bleed a red and black. And because he, he just made the move to PSG. But you know what? Yeah, I hated that he left. I hated his stupid fucking uh, agent that caused all this. But you know what? He, he did a good deal. Um, and you got to be fair. Zizou, in my opinion, is taking over the mantle of the best goalkeeper in the world. His, he's 6'5". He's agile. He's only 22 years old. He's been doing this now at a club level since 16, at the national level since like 17 or 18. He's experienced at 22. He's a European champion now. He's got a chance for many years. He could be the best goalkeeper for the next 15 years. 
Yeah. And I think he's finally taken that throne over now. So Forza Gijo, <coughs> I mean, he's the best. He's the best. Okay. Yeah, I definitely agree. He's definitely the best. Especially, it's crazy to think he's like 22 years old. Like 22, he's 22, and he's so dominant as he is now. That's crazy. But anyways, going back to England, what I'm really pissed off about. England fans, I'm going to speak to you most importantly directly. I know it sucks that you lost, but if you're going to blame someone, I don't want to, it pissed me off. I think everybody in the world knows what happened after this game, what England fans were doing and said and shit like that. Basically blaming Rashford, Saka, and Sancho, calling them the N-word, racially abusing them. So pissed off. And really the whole black community, just because they missed the three penalties and they end up losing the game. Listen, if you want to be pissed off at anyone, you need to be pissed off at your dumbass manager, Southgate. Why? I'll save the penalty shootout for here in a minute. Let's first talk about the whole game. You're up two minutes. You're up one nil. Instead of going for the foe and going for the kill early on, what do you do? You drop back. You allow Italy to put pressure on you. You allow Italy to dominate the possession of the ball. You allow Italy's midfield, Giorgino, Barella, and Verratti dominate the midfield. You allow Chiesa, Insigne, get up on the wings and put pressure on your fullbacks. Instead of going for the foe early, you backed off, and they end up, end up costing you. And then second half, you waited way too long to pit. Sancho in. You waited way too long to pick Rashford. They should have been brought in. I probably would have brought them in around the 70th minute. Or pretty much right after Italy scored, right? They scored at the 67th minute mark. I probably put them on around the 7th minute mark. Especially if you knew it was probably going to go into extra time. Or even an extra time. If you have a feeling it's going to go into penalty kicks, pick them in early. After like the 105th minute mark. The first half ended in extra time. Pick them in now. Give them some running time. Let the legs get fresh. Who knows? Maybe they could have scored a goal. Maybe they could have booked through because they both have pace and they both can score goals. Maybe they could have picked England up. That way you don't have to go in opponent shootouts. But no, you decided to bring him on too late. That's another thing. But the thing that pisses me off the most. Josh, can you imagine being 19 years old? The biggest match as of now in your entire career You've never been, I don't I don't really know too much about soccer. I don't know if he's ever been in a penalty shootout. If he has, it hasn't been near this amount of pressure. You're in Wembley, England fans, you're in front of the England fans surrounding you. If you miss, you lose. If you make it, you give your team another shot to win the game. He's 19 years old. Why the fuck was he taking that shot? Where was Raheem Sterling? I don't know. That's a good question. Where he was had, Luke Shaw? Where was uh, Jordan Henderson on the bench? Why did you take him off in the first place? Why in the hell did we him start? And you talk about the Harry Kane situation. I don't really care that he went first. That's actually fine. He ended up making the As long as you make the shot, it's fine. It doesn't matter to me. So he put, the, he put it in. Where the fuck was Raheem Sterling? Why didn't Jack Greenlish take one? He Why didn't Jack Greenlish take one? Someone who has maybe a little more, more experience and in this type of situations, who can deal with this type of pressure. If you look at Italy, you look at who saw it the first one? Was it Berardi? Berardi, yeah. Most of these guys are experienced and have been type in some type of pressure situations like this. Bonucci, he stepped up. He nailed the penalty. He's been in this type of situations like this. Even in the Spain game, he was in this situation, and he pitted him back in that. Bernadeschi plays for, used to play for Juve. I don't know if he still does or now, but he's been in situations like this. There are experience. 
I was if England had won that game, I'd have been happy for the England fans because it's been so long since they've won an international tournament, 1966 to be exact. They've never won the Euros ever. They've been so close so many times, and this is the team that I thought they can do it. But after what they did, and after I'm not a fan of Southgate, they deserve to lose that damn game. That's yeah. all I'm going to say. I don't know, a 19-year-old, a 19-year-old, you have him step up in the biggest penalty of his career. And you could tell he wanted no part of it. At 19 years old, I wouldn't want anything to do with that, ever. It is bullshit well, he put him in the position for that. I do not like Southgate at all. So if you're going to be pissed off with anyone, be pissed off with your manager. That's all I, I wish got. I- I wish I had one of those, um, maybe we can post that at one of those uh, clap traps. I'm taking this clip and I'm posting it everywhere I can because it Uh, it pissed me off. I mean, I don't blame, I agree with you. I knew what you're going with. And yeah, the racial bullshit is ignorant. I mean, yeah, of course, it's had fate where the three black guys on the team missed. Uh, And that's (laughs) just unfortunate. But you know what? Had they made them and England wins, they would have never said a damn word. They would never – it only came out because of – bull. and it, it, not only that, I've seen the videos on Twitter. Um, Italy fans were being attacked. People of color were being attacked inside Wembley after the match in the corridors and the hallways and the, everything, getting the shit beat out of them. England fans are notorious fucking drinkers and assholes. So I'm sorry. And I obviously – I went to four one this. This isn't every English fan. or I know. Yes, obviously. It, it, it's that group of people who think that way and act that way that are the hooligans that are trash and scum and it made it that much sweeter that Italy shoved the dick right up their ass inside their own backyard and it makes it sweet and I don't know if I can ever root for England again I'll root for some of their players like I, hell yeah I'll root for Saka and I'll root for uh Sancho because he's a great talent and Marcus Rashford and all that but never again will I root for England unless it's something absolutely you know one of them weird situations and things have changed or something but Screw all that. There's no place in sports or society to be like that anymore. And it's ridiculous. And it makes it even more sweeter that we went in there and beat their ass and left them a bunch of crybabies. By the the way, real quick, on Southgate, you're right. They should blame him for playing so damn conservative. They should have went for Italy's jugular, ended the game early, and celebrated. You never have to worry about penalty shootouts. Because obviously, and historically, England does not have a good record penalty shootouts, especially against a nation like Italy. Outside of Germany, Italy's probably the best country in the world at taking PKs. Yeah. Um, historically speaking. So, yeah, Southgate screwed up. His substitution pattern, he got outclassed, outcoached, outmaneuvered, out everything. Um, and we're, like you mentioned, or we talked about, where's Grealish? Where's Sterling at? Right? Where's Sterling at to take a penalty? Do these guys, and I know I listened to the post game, listened to them talk, watched some English media and stuff. And Southgate said, well, he's seen these guys in training, so blah, blah, blah. That's all great. But unless Raheem Sterling just said, no, I don't want to take one. No, which shows me the big pussy, if that's the case. You're the superstars of the great tournament, but you don't take a penalty shot. But unless they just said no, they need to be Grealish, and Sterling needs to be in that damn lineup shooting um or you need to spread them out better you need if Kane wants to go first that's great if you know Harry Maguire is that great of a penalty shooter put him fourth you don't even have to put him last put him fourth because they missed three in a row guarantee at least one in the back half that can either close it out or keep it close for you but you that's why Italy did 
their best penalty shooter, Peyton, goes fifth. And I know he missed the one in this match, but historic, I mean, in the world, he's probably not top five or six in the world at penalty shooters. Yeah, and Ronaldo, every time in Madrid or Portugal, he normally goes fifth. Ramos, who's a defender, after Ronaldo left, he became the number one penalty taker for us. Anytime there's a penalty shootout for Spain, he always either goes fourth or fifth. Another thing I really want to talk about, and I mentioned soccer being 19 years old and being put in that situation, which is absolutely ridiculous and absurd to me. Kylian Mbappe, 21 years old, superstar, young talent, plays for PSG, police St. Germain. Hopefully he'll soon be playing for the Los Blancos, hopefully. Um, he's a very young talent. He's a superstar, like I said. He missed the penalty against Switzerland and Switzerland winning the game. And yeah, he took a lot of flack for that. But here's the why I'll give him a pass. Even though he's 21 years old, I mean, there's a lot of good players on the France squad, but he's probably, in my opinion, probably the best player on that France squad. I know you got Greensman, you got Pogba, you got uh, Benzema, but he's up there. If you don't think he's the best, and he's definitely top. Oh, and you got Conte. He's definitely top three, in my opinion. He's one of the better players. He's a superstar. So him missing that, he, at least he took the opportunity to take it. Right. Soccer, he's not the best player on this England squad. Raheem Sterling, I make an argument that Raheem Sterling is probably the most important player on this England squad. I mean, Harry Kane's probably the best, definitely the best overall striker and the best overall scorer. But when it comes down to blitzing those sides and making opportunities, where it starts with Raheem Sterling. Well, I don't understand why he didn't take the penalty. And if it's because he didn't want to, then he's not a superstar, in my opinion. Because if you're a superstar... You want those situations. You want to be in those moments. You want to be able to put the icing onto the cake. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not a fan of Southgate ever. I would never be a fan of him. Wrapping up the Euro 2020 discussions, um, real quick, let, obviously Italy wins. Great. Um, so let's just do some awards just real quick. We're not going through every position, nothing like that. Just We'll go as a whole category. So, Peyton, your manager of the tournament, it's got to be one man, right? It's, it's, uh, wait, who'd you say? It's got to be Mancini, right? Oh, yeah, I think it's someone else. Yeah, it's 100% Mancini. Man Mancini. Your goalkeeper of the tournament? Uh, easy, Donnarumma. Defender, just a, the defender, whether it be a fullback or center back that stood out to you the most, if you had to give one defender, who, who do you think you'd go with? Uh, honestly, Harry Maguire. We're on the same wavelength. I was I thought very he impressed was, with him. I thought he was tremendous the whole tournament, and I think um, honorable mention would have been Spinazzola, even though he missed the final two matches. Spinazzola would be honorable mention. Um, yeah, Harry Maguire was fantastic. Uh, midfielder, best midfielder of the tournament. Okay. I'm going with Petri. I was actually super – I know you had the whole Italian midfield. I was super impressed with Petri, and it sucks that he plays for Barcelona. So I'm going with Petri. Yeah, I'm going to go with um, – I'm going to go with Giorgino because I thought the way he dominated, and then Pedri's a super close second. I'll go with Giorgino, but, yeah, Pedri's a great one. Um, you'd even probably went Danny Olmo as well. I thought he had a great tournament. Yeah, but I think Pedri had better. Uh, and then we'll do two two attackers, and I know what two right off the top of my head who I'm going with. Two attackers? They, it can be striker, forward. Okay, Ronaldo. Just... 
You there? I accidentally hit my space key. I actually was muted. Anyways, I'm going with Naldo because he's a top goal scorer. And I'm winning the golden boot, as he should. Um, so I'm going with Cristiano Ronaldo. And second choice is very tough because I either want to go with Chiesa or I want to go with Raheem Sterling. But since I'll go with Chiesa because I think he's actually more important for his team than Raheem Sterling was. Even though Sterling was so good. Yeah. Besides the last go, game. I'm going to go with Ronaldo Lukaku. Um, yeah. <laughs> Lukaku, Lukaku was tremendous uh, all tournament long. He's been great for Inter. So there you have it. Wrap up Euro 2020 Italia back on top. Let's go down to South America, Peyton. We had the Copa America final the night before. The major world-class rivals in Argentina, Brazil, in the Americana. Sadly, they only had like 2,600 fans in a building that, or in a stadium that holds like 80,000 plus. The site of the World Cup 2014. Peyton, Di Maria hey. scores 22 yeah. minutes, 22 minutes in. And it finally, for the first time, Messi gets to be a champion for his uh, country. Argentina won, Brazil nil. I think the story of this match, besides the whole feel good for Messi, is those referees, especially the final 20 minutes, did not give a shit. No. Neymar, Messi, any player that dove, he said, get up, get up. We're playing on this through. I thought it was fun, the match, even though it was 1-0. And I said we'd be surprised. I thought it'd be five or six goals. But it played out like it played <laughs> out. But still, even a 1-0, the stakes on the line, the rivals, the talent, it was a fun matchup. I thought I had a lot of fun watching this as my lead in the UFC 264. I thought it was a great match. I'll tell you what, I missed the first half and I missed, I wouldn't say majority of the second half because I was, I was busy doing some stuff. But uh, we ended up actually having a game that day, so couldn't really watch too much of the first half. But um, I ended up catching like the last 20 minutes of it. I tuned in around the 70 minute mark. And I'm glad I did because that was the wildest 20 minutes I've ever watched in a soccer game ever. That was crazy. It was back and forth. You mentioned the refs. They allowed no dives. Neymar, he tried to dive a couple times. He said, nope, get up. Vinicius Jr. came on. I don't know if he started. I don't know if he came no, on No, he came not. on. He, he came on. on. Uh, he played on the left wing, as he does for Madrid. Um, he was trying to take defenders on 1v1. He was taking dives. Uh, Messi even took a couple dives. There's a lot of players putting their all effort into this last 20 minutes. Um, Brazil had multiple opportunities to score. They have so much pace. It is ridiculous. Um, you remember back in like FIFA 14 playing all those Brazilian squads on ultimate team because all they want to do is just use pace, and that's what Brazil has is a lot of pace, especially on this team. But I didn't know they had fans. I didn't think they would. I mean, this whole tournament, I don't think they had any type of fans, but I'm actually glad they at least had some. Made it definitely entertaining. And I think, I don't know how many corners Brazil had in that final opportunities. They had like probably four or five in the last 10 minutes and just couldn't get in the back of the net. Messi, Leo Messi, Leonel Messi had a chance to put the icing on the cake. And he fucked it up. And I thought for sure, I was like, no way Brazil's going to go kind of attacking that making this 1-1. One, one. I was like, could you imagine he misses that or he flops one? Because it's probably, it, especially for him, it's a routine goal for him. Um, he had a 1v1 against the keeper, and he just, I guess he thought it 
too much, put too much thought into it. And I don't know if the pitch was a little bit wet. I don't know if it was raining there or not. But lost they the lost ball. control of the ball, and the keeper ended up gotten it, gotten out to whoever it was. And I, I was like, if they would have scored that, and they would end up losing, Argentina lost. There's no, there's no chance Messi would ever play another game in Argentina uniform ever. But you know what? I'm a Ronaldo fan. I'm a Real Madrid fan. You can say whatever you want about Ronaldo or Messi. You can say Messi's the goat. You can say Ronaldo's the goat. The one and two for me. They're yeah. the two greatest players of all time, in my opinion. And I think they're neck and neck. I mean, you can probably get – I obviously, I'm a Ronaldo fan, so I'm going to give him a slight edge on it just because what he's done in Champions League, stuff like that. But Messi, after all these years, he finally got his international trophy. And after the whistle blow, he went down. His whole team surrounded him, and I thought that was cool as and shit. And they were picking him up. and Picking him up, him. throwing him up. And then him and Neymar, Neymar was blowing his eyes out because they lost in Brazil. And uh, which is actually kind of funny, well, not funny, but it's a coincidence, a coincidentally, or quinin, I don't know how to say that word. Coincidentally, um, the two teams that hosted the final, England and Brazil, they both lost. Yep. Um, so that's and, little... and, and also, ironically, four years to the exact day uh, that Messi gets his first ever trophy for his country, Ronaldo on that exact same day. Back in, I guess it was five years ago now. 2016. Uh, 2016. You know what else? Gets his first trophy for Portugal side. So they're always just going to be intertwined. You know what else? Uh, you mentioned July. Um, wait, when did he win? Wait, what was July it? 11th. Or July, July 10th. 10th. July 10th, 2016. Ronaldo finally got his first trophy. July 10th of 2021. Messi got his trophy. You know what <clears throat> day and month that is? It's the seventh month of the year and the 10th day. Yeah, Messi for 10, Ronaldo for 7. That's so weird. Yeah, it's crazy, man. But, yeah, you're right. These two are the GOATs, and you got to feel happy for Messi. Um, he deserves it. He might not always been the best in this tournament, but what he does, he's different from Ronaldo. Ronaldo's always seeking goals and stuff, and Messi can drop back and be okay with just picking apart with his dribbling and passing, and then when you forget about it, he'll tear you apart. Um, he's got that golden – left foot from God and but they're different players but you know what Argentina gets the dub they finally get them a, another trophy ironically you know their first major tournament after their legend Diego Maradona passes away they go and win the, the Copa America speaking of Diego Maradona the, they're trying to set up one final match in the international play before club play starts back up for everybody um a match in Italy that would be the basically the Diego Maradona um, Memorial Cup between the Copa America win in Argentina and the European champions, Italy. There's all there's all this history there because Maradona is Argentinian. Um, obviously, he was a legendary player, won a World Cup with him in Mexico back in the 80s. He was their manager, coached Lionel Messi, but his club playing days he became famous being in Italy playing for Napoli so there's kind of all the irony there and I'm with you this should happen anyways yeah, the Copa America champion and the European champion should play each other yeah so they, maybe we might be getting a matchup one final one between Italy and Argentina and that could be a lot of fun yeah like I said they like you said um they definitely should do this anyway it should be a thing anyways um should be a, a in any given thing, every time the Copa America champions crowned and the Euro, or the Euro champions crowned, because they do it in club football, 
whoever wins the Champions League, Champions League and whoever wins the Europa League, they always play each other in the Super Cup uh, to determine who's like the best team. And uh, so why not do it in international play as well? I think it'll be fun because that's a toss-up matchup for me. Argentina is very good, very talented, and so is Italy. And I think it'll be a fun game to watch. So hopefully they can get it done soon because obviously club football is going to start here soon. Wrapping up kind of some of the soccer talk, let's go down to the Gold Cup competition that is going on. Peyton, game three, the final games and group stages are we're starting to uh, wrap up. USA is currently beating Canada with only a couple minutes left, 1-0. But there's four groups, A, B, C, D. The top two go into the knockout stage in the quarterfinals to set up the clashes. So far in Group A, we've got El Salvador and Mexico 1-2 with El Salvador leading the group, but they do play Mexico tomorrow. The winner of that will win the group. Both teams are going through, though. They're clear. In Group B, it is Canada and the USA at top with six points. Haiti and Martinique, both you know, no points. So both Canada and USA are going through. It looks like USA is yeah. going to clean sweep the group and win Group B. Yeah. Um, group C sees Costa Rica and Jamaica tied atop at six points apiece. Um, same way as Group B, Guadalupe and Suriname with nil or you know no points, and then Group D, Honduras leads with six, Qatar with four, Panama with one, and Granada with nil. There's still hope that Panama can make it through, but they would need to win and have Qatar lose, and then some goal differential. But it looks like Honduras and Qatar. So Peyton, our final eight looks to be set in the Gold Cup competition: El Salvador, Mexico, Canada, the U.S. Costa Rica, Jamaica, Honduras, and Qatar. As we look ahead to the quarterfinals, <clears throat> USA's look very good. Mexico had the one draw, but their win, they looked really good where they put up four goals. El Salvador, if you remember, they were the surprise a couple years ago, making their first ever World Cup. Costa Rica's got a really good squad. Jamaica has got so much. You know what? Jamaica would be one of those countries. If all their talent played for them instead of, being English or whatever, because they have a lot of, like Raheem Sterling, if I remember right, is Jamaican English, but he plays for England. If yeah. all their guys played for Jamaica, you talk about a country that could be nasty to watch. But anyways, yeah. and then Honduras, Qatar, Peyton, early looks or predictions maybe on some quarterfinal stuff. I think going into this tournament that I think Mexico is the favorites to win. I know that before the Gold Cup started, I think Mexico was a slight favorite over the U.S., as, as they probably should be because they have a very talented squad. But I don't think Lozano's playing. I'm pretty sure he's injured. Um, I have to double-check on that, but I'm pretty sure he's actually out of this whole Gold Cup tournament, which actually yeah, sucks he's for them. Yeah, he's not so, playing. So, yeah, it definitely sucks for them. That's a huge loss for them. But I really hope we can get another USA versus Mexico matchup in the final. I think that's going to be very fun to watch. Both teams are very talented. USA has yet to give up a goal this whole and group stage. Uh, they swept the whole group stage. Um, and the scoring goals, they're looking very impressive to me. Um, I think USA, I, I call me a homer or not, but I think I like USA's chances. Depending on who they get in the draw, like whoever's in like the quarterfinals or whatever, what the, what the bracket's like, I think I like USA winning this. I do too. At least, get, at least definitely get into the final. And you got to feel good because a lot of their top talent, like Christian Pulisic, like Weston McKinney, like um, a lot of their their top guys, by um, they're not playing. Yeah. They're back with clubs. So good run for the U.S. We'll keep updated as we go along with the Gold Cup, but we're almost through the knockout stage of that competition. Been pretty fun to keep up with. Real quick before we end this segment, Peyton, this long-ass segment on soccer, 
um, of the soccer portion of the show. Got to give an update on AC Milan. We have just officially signed Olivier Giroud from Chelsea. We've officially signed Fode uh, Balo Torre. The back, he's going to be our backup left back um, behind Teo Hernandez. Got him for Monaco from a deal. Brahim Diaz will be rejoining the club on a two-year loan this time with a $22 million buy and a $27 million buyback clause for Real Madrid. Maldini and company in a weird market where not a lot of teams have money because of the pandemic and everything. Strengthening the squad little by little with great pieces. I like the Giroud signing, even though some might. I, I hear a lot of good stuff about it. He is a he just won the Champions League with Chelsea and an experienced striker. Um, big time football at the highest level. He's a World Cup winner. He can still play. He's going to share time with Zlatan. Milan are still looking to sign another young striker, a couple more midfield guys. Um, but I really like what's going on in the Mercato right now as we come up on the start of Serie A next month. And Milan just played their first friendly against Philly Seaside yesterday at the Milanello um, Processa. And Milan did, of course, what they were expected to do. They won 6-0. Leal scored. Uh, Castillejo scored. Tomasa Pegba scored. Um, I don't remember who else. But I do know I've seen the highlights. And a couple of those guys, even though it was a friendly and a match that you definitely should win, I thought Howaga looked decent. I thought Tobago looked good. He's the young talent that we're thinking about shipping off for a part of a deal to La Spezia. So we, that might change their mind. Um, it was nice to see Romagnoli back in the starting lineup. He teamed up with Tamori. They look good. So, but competition in the friendly is going to pick up, and it's a good thing because you need that get ready for Champions League in this season. Um, we've got Juve next and uh, friendly, and then I know Real Madrid's coming up. We go to France for a couple against uh, OGC Nice and Marseille, and then we round off right before um, – Right before we go into City A, we will play, um, I think it's Valencia. So I'm really excited, of course, for the, the Madrid matchup and the friendly. That's going to be played in Austria. Yep. Obviously, friendlies don't mean shit. They win, lose, but they do are a good barometer of kind of getting your team ready to, you know, if you look good, then that's a good thing. If you look bad, then it can be concerning. But at the same time, it don't really mean nothing. But I love the Madrid matchup because – yeah, you get a lot of people some chances against a team that you might see in the Champions League. So I love that matchup. Yeah, as do I. And that's really the only noseworthy news for Madrid is obviously we're playing Milan in the friendly on August 8th, uh, playing in Austria, like you said. Um, these two teams combined have like 20 uh, Champions League titles. Real Madrid has 13, AC Milan has seven, the two most winning winningest teams in the Champions League history. I'm going to face off in friendly, so it's nice. It's going to be our second friendly. Uh, first friendly is actually next week on the 25th. We play uh, Rangers FC. Um, hopefully, I'll be able to check out that game. I don't know if it'll be on TV, but I definitely probably be able to check out, check out the highlights of it. If not, um, and then we obviously we play Milan on the 8th, and that's our only two friendlies that we have so far because August 14th, we start our season. We start our campaign off to win another, hopefully, we claim our throne as the League of Champions and hopefully win our 14th um, Champions League title. And our season starts August 14th against all of us. Hopefully, I think it's, I, don't, I, I think we're home, the home team, at least we should be the home team. Hopefully, the Bernabeu 
because I know they was doing renovations like a whole the whole last season and off season to the Bernabeu. So hopefully that's already ready to go. If not, then we'll probably play on our training field. Even if it's even at Madrid, I'm actually not sure. But hopefully we can start a campaign off right with these friendlies and then get the start of the seasons real quickly. So, Hala Madrid. So, and one last thing too, um, the betting odds came out for um, the BPL this year. Man City opens up as the favorite at a one to 16 odds, Liverpool second, one to four, Chelsea at one to four odds, Man United two to seven, Tottenham four to one, Leicester nine to two, Arsenal nine to two, and Everton at a 10 to one. Um, I think it was pretty spot on. I could see the city, although I think this is a Liverpool revenge tour. I think they're pissed off. I think you see vintage Klopp and Liverpool form. Just my opinion, preseason, I think Liverpool is going to win the BPL and be a factor in the Champions League. You want to hear my top four real quick? Go ahead. I have Chelsea winning it. I have United second. I have City third. I have, And then I have Liverpool fourth. I think this United team, especially if they get Rafael Varane from Madrid, the defense is going to be nasty with McGuire, Haley Maguire and Varane as the two central backs. And I think Luke Shaw is actually one of their fullbacks, uh, if I remember correctly. Um, and then obviously they have, I think they have Edison Cavani up front. They have Rashford. They have um, Pogba. They got a lot. Oh, they just got Jaden Sancho. They got a lot of talent down there in Manchester Bruno United. Fernandes. Bruno Fernandes. That's another good one. Um, a lot of talent down there. I think they're actually looking for a really good season. And uh, City, they're still going to be really good. But Chelsea, the reigning defending Champions League champs. Um, their defense is disgusting. Christian Pulisic is fun to watch. Um, I think this champ, I think should be a fun season in the BPL. As far as Liverpool goes, uh, I don't know about them. I well, think, we have, uh, yeah, I, I don't know have, about them. Yeah, we have plenty of time. But again, soccer's taking up a lot of time, but you guys know the deal already. So we're going to take a quick pause for the cause, catch our breath. and we come back, we got some MLB All-Star game to talk about, NBA Finals, a little Aaron Rodgers news. UFC 264 recap and much more. Stay tuned as you listen to episode four of Sports Talk with JB. We'll be right back in just one. It's coming, Rome!
All right, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to episode four of the podcast. Hope you guys are enjoying it so far. Let's come back, Peyton. This past week, we had MLB All-Star action. We kind of previewed it a little bit, and as far as the home run derby goes in the last episode, but Monday night was the first home run derby I'd sat and watched start to finish in many a year, and I was so glad I did. What a fun night in Coors Field, Peyton. Let's break down the action. Round one, seeing Trey Mancini knock off Matt Olson's 24-23. Mancini was on fire. His swing was so quick and crisp, it was fun to watch. Trevor Story, representing for the hometown Colorado Rockies, took out Joey Gallo. Who I took know out was, my pick. Gallo oh, struggled. There was three-minute intervals, and then if you hit one over 500 feet, you got an extra 30-second uh, mm-hmm. bonus time, and yeah. most of them did. I think just about everybody got the bonus time in the first round, but Gallo, he ended up with 19 and caught fire the last ni- or 60 seconds, but that first minute and a half, you were allowed one timeout of 10 seconds to kind of catch your breath or whatever, or maybe it's 20 seconds, but you were allowed a little timeout, kind of catch your breath, reset. When he took his, he'd only had like two home runs in the first 90 seconds. He was he was line driving them, <clears throat> pop ups. Then he got in a groove, but it just it wasn't enough. So he lost in his first round. Um, the story. The polar bear defending his crown, Pete Alonzo, 35 in the first round. He was putting on a show. Um, oh, my God. He was just hit. I think he hit a streak of like 11 in a row. Just pop. And his pitcher is this old man. He was putting them everywhere. Like, he, Pete wanted them high and a little inside so he could turn on them. And that dude hit it the same spot. He was like a robot. Hit the same spot every time. Pete Alonzo, 35 in the first round. And he beat Salvador Perez, who in his own right had 28. He had 28. He just got matched up with freaking Pete Alonzo. Bad matchup. Bad matchup. I mean, Alonzo put a show on. But Salvi did great, too. And then the final first-round matchup, the one everybody wanted to see. Juan Soto beat Shohei Otani, 31-28. They had to go into a swing-off. They tie after the first swing-off. If I'm right, they went to another one. They tied again, and they finally went to you got three pitches. Whoever, however many you hit in three pitches is it. Soto goes first to put the pressure on. He cranked all three of his. I mean, they were moonshot. Um, and Otani, I think he missed the first one, didn't hit a home run, so he automatically lost. So uh, Soto upsets Shohei, but man, they had to go in a bunch of different. Uh, like uh, swing-offs and stuff. Otani, everybody was, you know, he had a lot of pressure because everybody was there to see him. He, yeah. he kind of started off like Gallo. He didn't really swing well at first. Bunch of line-outs. Then he called a timeout. Then he got into a group. All of a sudden, he was down. I'm wanting to say it was like nine or it was like 21. And by his timeout, he only had four or five. And then he hits like 17 going in, you know, the final 60 seconds. It was crazy. But then, then we're getting to the semifinals. Mancini continues his storybook run, taking out Trevor Story 13-12. Story kind of ran out of gas, too. He uh, he went second – or he went first, sorry, and he was he was gassed in the first round. And then Pete Alonzo, you know, Soto goes first in that round. He hit 16 – or, sorry, he hit 15. Alonzo hit 16. I swear to God, he hit 16 home runs in the second round – or in the semifinal round and only, like, 21 pitches. 
Jesus. Uh, he was putting on the show. He was dancing. Then that sets us up for the final. Pete Alonzo against Trey Mancini. Mancini goes first at 22. His swing, I'm talking about a lot of these guys, like a three-point competition of basketball. You can't admire your work. You have to get the swing off, get set real quick because another pitch is coming. Or in a shot, you have to shoot, basically, and get your another ball. Yeah. Mancini was swing and reload, swing and reload. He had 22. Problem is, Alonzo comes up. He has hip-hop going. He's dancing. He's bobbing around. And he smacked 23. And he, I swear to God, he had his first eight. Then he missed one. Then hits like another eight. And then misses one. Then it hits his final five. He was just unbelievable. So two years in a row, technically, 2019 and 2021, the, the polar bear, Pete Alonzo. The polar bear. What a nickname. Yeah. Back-to-back home run derby champs joins Ken Griffey Jr., and I think it was Robinson Cano is the only other people to do that. So Dash and is going to try to be the only person since Griffey to win three next year. He said, we'll have to wait and see. But Alonzo, home run derby champ, put on a show. Did you by chance get to see any of the highlights? Not yet. Unfortunately, I was going to watch. Actually, I was wanting to watch the home run derby because it's actually fun to watch. Um but I think, I don't know if it was the day I got my second shot for the vaccine or if it was the day after. But either way, I was sick and didn't feel like watching. So I just laid in bed. But I'm going to watch the highlights probably tonight or after we get on recording. Or probably when I'm editing the show, I'll probably watch some highlights um, of it. But, yeah. And, and the question is, you asked, or they asked him if he's going to go for a 3 P. Why not? Go for it. Put on the show. Go for the 3 P. If you can't, if you're not injured or anything, Go for the three feet. Why not? It depends on his contract and stuff because he's still on like a base salary. Like he's super underpaid right now from his like rookie deal. Um, so it all depends if he wants to risk getting injured and stuff. But moving on to Tuesday night, we had the All Star game. Obviously, the way baseball set up, the uh, there's stakes in this All Star game, unlike any other sport, where the winning club gets to host the World Series. Mm. So it, it, it's so important to win this game. Yeah, it's fun, but the AL5, NL2, so the winner of the AL pennant gets to host the World Series or the host team. Uh, or yeah, home field advantage is what I mean. You know what I mean, home field advantage. Um, so that's huge. So if you're a Boston Red Sox or the Houston Astros or one of these AL teams that's been really good this year, you make it to the World Series, you're guaranteed that if it goes game seven, that you're going to play game seven inside Fenway or, you know, uh, or not Camerica, whatever the hell they call the Astro Stadium. I forget right now, but so it's huge. But AL wins 5 2. Vladimir Jr., or Vladimir Guerrero Jr., in his first ever All Star appearance, wins MVP of the game. He had a home run. I think it was a three run shot. So AL takes down the NL 5 2. Vladdy Jr., you know, what a great season he's having. He's leading the league and uh, batting average. He's got, I think, 30 home runs. He's he's finally starting to play up to his potential. He, his dad was, of course, a legend, Vladimir Guerrero. So <clears throat> cool to see. Um, the, the two Reds, Winker and Castellanos, both played. They were back-to-back in the lineup for the NL and starting-wise. If I remember right, Winker got a hit, and I think Castellanos grounded out, if I remember right. But lastly, in MLB, we're not going to talk standings right now because um, 
baseball just started back up a couple of days, you know, this weekend. So we'll wait till the next show to kind of review standings and everything. Trade deadlines coming up July 30th is the deadline for teams to make moves. We've already seen the Cubs and their fire sell. They traded away Jock Peterson to the Atlanta Braves. But also big this past week was the MLB draft. Now we're not going to go over obviously every pick and break down, but I, I'm going to pull up baseballamerica.com, one of the best all baseball websites in the entire world. They have their winners and losers um, from the draft. And actually, it looks like it's not even a pull. Oh, it's a video. So I'm actually just going to kind of skip that. But I do know the Reds, um, Reds had a good draft. I've seen another guy on YouTube that has hundreds of thousands of views. I forget his name or I'd give him some love. But basically, he broke down his winners and losers, too. He had the Tigers, the Angels. The Angels are the first team. I, the Angels were number one in his opinion. The Angels are the first team in the modern era of the draft. All, I think, 15 of their picks were pitchers. Jeez. Every pick was a pitcher, but they all got a lot of quality, from obviously starting in the bullpen. The Tigers, if I remember right, were number two. They thought they got good pieces, and the Reds were number three because the Reds got some good mix. They got a young catcher. They got a good infielder. So I'll have that more. I'll find the official winners and losers um, for the next show. That's my bad. I thought that this article pull up, but you got it's behind a paywall, so I'll find another one. But – Nonetheless, MLB draft, a lot of teams uh, <laughs> dreams. Oh, by the way, real quick, on, on the draft, I shared this too. This is how crazy this works. The 100, and I think it's the 76 pick, 148th, right around that region, the sixth round, okay? The sixth of like 15, so it's not like the NFL draft where it's like six or seven. It's like six or 15. Chicago Cubs took this kid from Texas A&M. Forget his name, you know, all that. I think he's a left fielder. For that base pay, normally, for the sixth round at that pick, is like $263,000 and some change. The, the Cubs paid him, signed him for $1,000. Now, you ask yourself, how does that happen? Why would he accept that? Because baseball rules, college seniors don't have the option of going back into the draft like, underclassmen or high schoolers do like if you're a high school or underclassman you get drafted late or by a team you don't want you can just say oh, okay well I'll stay another year in school and then I'll get redrafted college seniors don't have that luxury their time is out so it's either you take this contract and try to go through the minor leagues and chase your dreams or basically they say piss off so the Cubs saved themselves two hundred and sixty-two thousand dollars by getting the six-round pick, he's a senior in college. I think it was Texas A&M, if I remember right, and paid him $262,000 under market. They gave him a $1,000 contract. And he had to take it or else it's like, well, if you don't take it, then there's no guarantees that you're ever going to be in the minor league. That's, that's wild. Could you imagine if something like that happened in the NBA – like, let's just, no, let's just say, for example, like David Johnson plays for Louisville last season. He had a good year. Or even Carly Jones. Say if he gets drafted by a team that he don't want to play for or he doesn't – let's just say hypothetically, he gets drafted to, like, Golden State and they all have a nice point guard and Steph Curry and the rumors you get, like, Ben Simmons or Lonzo Ball. So they're, like, stacked at the guard position. He probably won't get playing time or anything like that. 
and you they allowed him even though he's a senior they allowed him to come back to Louisville even though he got drafted that would be wild I probably wouldn't I mean for Louisville I like it but if they I don't know that's weird I didn't actually know you can do that it's such a tough spot to be in because if you're the kid you're like well this is probably my only shot then um speaking of Louisville didn't Henry Davis go number one catcher uh, I think so. I don't remember now. I think he did. Let me pull it up here real quick. I think he did now that you said that. Um, where was it at? Wait, I thought I pulled it up here. Maybe I didn't. I'm pretty sure he went number one because I've seen something on the Louisville page where we've had a number one pick in football, basketball, soccer, and uh, baseball. Uh, it's not showing up here real quick. Draft her, maybe. Wow, so it's not just that kid, too. I just read from five minutes ago, the Pirates signed fifth-round third baseman Jackson Glenn for $12,500. Slot value for the 133rd pick is $422,300. A $409,800 under slot value. That's so crazy. I know the financial situation is tough right now in baseball, but Man, they're they're hurt. You know, these kids are getting fucked. Yeah, Henry Davis went number one to the Pirates. Yep. Jack Leiter went number two to the Rangers. Oh yeah, good fan. So moving on from baseball, like I said, we'll have more talk as the you know summer rolls on, um, kind of breaking stuff down more, and I'll have the full draft review here soon too. But moving on to the NBA, Peyton. The Bucks are now up 3-2. When we last talked, Phoenix was dominating the series 2-0. I did predict that the Bucks would take two in Milwaukee. Too. And that did happen. But what none of us expected is that last night, Milwaukee goes back to Phoenix for game five and steals, steals the game in home court and maybe even the series now from Phoenix. They're now one win away from an NBA championship. And game six is tomorrow night, Monday night. In Milwaukee, Peyton, does Milwaukee close up shop or do they allow the door to be open for the game seven in Phoenix? I said last time the show started because I agreed. I said that I seen I definitely see Milwaukee win game the next game or getting a game, and I see them win two games and tying the series up. But what I didn't think, like you said, I didn't think the Bucks was gonna steal one in Phoenix. I said that the Suns was gonna win in six. If they're going to win, they're going to have to go to a game seven. And I said, if it went to game seven, then I'd like the Bucs to win. I'm changing my pick. I think the Bucs close them out in game six, and the Bucs become almost the national championship. They become the NBA champions. And, uh, yeah, I think the Bucs are going to get the job done. Drew Holiday in that game, I didn't watch too much of it, but I heard a lot of praise from because I know Giannis was hugging him and stuff like that. Apparently, he played, like, super clutch. I know he had that steal against Devin Booker with, like, I don't know how many seconds to go, and threw that amazing oop to Giannis. Um, so, yeah, I heard he had a hell of a well, how, game. How about in game four, Giannis is basically game-saving block against DeAndre Ayton. Yeah. Just super, man. So the Bucks got a chance. They can wrap things up here and uh, close up shop. Let's see. I'm just saying this. If they allow – if they don't win at home and close this out tomorrow night and it goes game seven, Phoenix is winning game seven. 
Here's a little stat for you. Giannis Antetokounmpo is just the third player in NBA history to record at least 150 points, 50 rebounds, and 25 assists through the first five games of the NBA Finals. The other two players would do it was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and LeBron James. Damn. So, yeah. Who, who knows? Maybe the next episode we come to you guys, we'll have a full NBA breakdown and preview because the Bucks have tucked the title, or maybe we're talking about the the all-important, everybody's favorite, Game 7 in sports. So stay tuned. It's either going to be party in Milwaukee or we're heading for high drama out west. So moving on, Peyton, our first NFL talk of this <coughs> podcast series. And it's not a whole lot, but we do have two items. One, real quick, Richard Sherman's a dumbass, and he's facing a lot of jail time right now. Um, what? Domestic assault and abuse and everything else. More stuff's coming out, but he's screwed himself, I'm pretty sure. Um, and then the, the one important for you and I as Packers fans, Peyton. On NFL.com right now, I'm reading, it says nothing new to update on Rodgers, but coming from Aaron Rodgers' mouth himself and – with training camps beginning at the end of this month, July 30th, or sorry, July 27th, their decision will be made soon. And if you hear him talk and kind of read between the lines, you hear Tom Brady telling him about, you know, not getting along with teammates and uh, during their golf match. And he says, no, it's not that I don't like the GM and everything and that he'll be making decisions soon within the next couple of weeks and all this stuff. I'm led to believe that number 12 will be under center again for the Green Bay Packers. And if so, Peyton, our Packers, the Cheeseheads, have yet another team to make a run towards the Super Bowl. Who we play first game? Is it Chicago? Yeah. Is that Soldier Field at Lambeau? Uh, fuck, I don't know. You're making me pull it up. Well, even it doesn't matter because, you. yeah, I and Rodgers, he's coming back. Um, when this whole stuff came out about him and, you know, no, we played, we played New Orleans at well, New Orleans. whoever we play, it doesn't matter because they're getting their ass whooped, especially if number 12 is under center um, and in that Green Bay jersey, as I think he is. Um, I'm sure he's probably so annoyed. I th- it's probably, no matter what, if he's back into a Green Bay jersey, it's probably his last season in Green Bay. Um, unless he pulls a Leon or Messi and decides, you know, no, nah, I'm fine. I'll come back again. But uh, either or, I think he's coming back. And I think we'll have a legitimate chance to win the Super Bowl this year. We've got a good defense. I like what we did in the draft, bringing in the cornerback from Georgia that helps go along with um, Jair Alexander, who arguably, in my opinion, is the best. If he's the back. best. He's the best corner in the game. Yeah, and he's a lockdown corner. We've got, I, you know, linebackers, you know, Preston Smith, the Darius Smith's kind of still there. It'd be edge rusher, too, if they line up. Um, the defensive line, could, I guess, could be a little tricky at times. Safeties we're good at. I love our safeties. Yeah. Love our safeties. Um, some veterans and the, the youth back there. He's going to have – offensive line scares me a little bit. But wide receivers, he should be all right there. Running backs. I mean, Aaron Jones, unless he gets hurt or just has a down year, he should be a 1,000-yard rusher this year. Yeah, if Rodgers is back, Peyton, there's no reason why we can't contend for another Super Bowl. Yeah, like you said, our running backs are very good. You got Andrew Jones, um, or 
Aaron Jones, I forgot to say his name. Uh, and then you got A.J. Dillon, played for Boston College two years ago. He was a rookie last season. He played he's, a lot. Hey. He, got, he got a lot of playing time last season. And, yeah, he's a tank. So he's such a good backup running back for Jones. But uh, one thing the other, one thing I really don't like about this offseason that we did, I don't like that we, we signed Kevin King. I'm not a fan of him. He basically we let him go. No, we. I'm positive. I'll check it right now. Um, yeah, it, it does show he's back. But I yeah, I was just say, I'm, all, I'm positive that we, we that we resigned him, which I don't understand why. I mean, he's the reason uh, he got burnt in the NFC Championship game against Tampa Bay. Yeah, I don't think I don't see him starting because the kid that we just got from Georgia in the first round, I could see that kid starting, and maybe King will be a little better in the slot. Maybe, but be. I don't know. If um, you look at the Packers depth chart right now. Now, of course, this doesn't mean a whole lot, but oh well, this is from January. Never mind. Hold on, let me see if I can find one a projected depth chart um, to maybe help out. I was going to say we, there's a couple holes projected depth chart. This is on the fly, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, sir. One having any other way. So this is from June. So projected, projected. So this is a little more um, recent. You look at the receivers, Devontae Adams, Alan Lazard, uh, Equimius St. Brown, Marcus Scantling, Valdez Scantling. Obviously, those four have a great rapport with Rodgers. He's back, so he can do big things with them. Um, you look at the offensive lines where it scares me just a little bit. David Bakhtiari is one of the best left tackles in the game. Yep. John Runyon's not <clears throat> bad. Elton, or Elton Jenkins at center, but, you know, Lucas Patrick, Young guy at right guard, a little iffy. The right side scares me a little bit. Lucas Patrick, I know Billy Turner played quite a bit last season, but they do scare me a little bit. That right side, the left side's fine. Bakatiari, John Runyon, and Jenkins is fine. But Patrick and Turner scare me. But you look at our tight ends. How about the great year that Robert Tanyan had? He re-signed Mercedes Lewis. Two really good tight ends, and even three because Jay Sternberger's not bad. Uh, obviously, Rodgers, and then your running backs. We talked about Aaron Jones, A.J. Dillon. So the offense looks good. Defensively, Dean Lowry on the end. Hit on the ends, Dean Lowry and Tyler Lancaster. Uh, Lancaster's a little iffy, but Lowry's good. Kenny Clark is the nose tackle. Linebackers, Rashawn Gary, he can line up on the edge as well. Um, inside backers, they're a little interesting. Um, <coughs> Chris Barnes, um, Kamal Martin. Not really sure on them, but Zadarius Smith. And I, I forgot Preston Smith's no longer with us either. Yeah, right? yeah he is. Yeah, he is. He's still there. Oh, they yeah, got him listening yeah. listen behind Rashawn Gary. Um, and then, you know, our, our secondary, Jair Alexander, Darnell Savage, Adrian Amos, Kevin King. Uh, Eric Stokes is the kid from Georgia, by the way. Eric Stokes. They've got him listed behind Kevin King, and that may be the truth. But if he plays out like I think and King sucks, Sadly, that could buy week five or six switch, you know what I'm saying, where Stokes or maybe Stokes is now the taking care of the slot. But either way, up and down the line, then you look at kickers, you know, J.K. Scott punter, Mason Crosby kicker. The Packers got a lineup that can get back to the Super Bowl. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I definitely think so, uh, especially if Rodgers is back. If Rodgers is not back, I just don't know about Jordan Love. Um, even though I've heard some praise about him, um, I think he could be a good quarterback, be a type of like a Russell Wilson type, where uh, um, 
Lamar Jackson or Kyler Murray, guys like that. There's a little bit more of a Cam Newton, who's more of a dual threat quarterback. But hopefully we don't have to find out because hopefully number 12 will be back on this Sunday in Green Bay. So I'll have, as we get closer to football season, maybe even near a few weeks, just because I'm starting to get that football itch a little bit. Um, I'm going to, as long with Peyton's health, I'm going to have a full, you know, one through 30 um, breakdown of, all right, how many, is it 30? It's 30. 30, okay. One through 30 in the NFL um, breakdown, kind of like we do for college basketball. A lot of you from ECB will know of who I think, but I'm just telling you right now, the five teams in no particular order to start the year, in my opinion, and this is saying Rodgers is with Green Bay, you got to look at the Packers, the Buccaneers, you've got to look at the Bills, the Chiefs, and the Colts. To me, those are the top five teams that's going to start the year off. Two from the NFC, three from the AFC. And it's 32 teams. I'm actually stupid. For some reason, I thought it was 30. Okay. I was thinking of basketball. Um, anyways, yeah, I don't think – I think the Bucs are still, like, you know, the, the, the rainy defending champs. I still think they're going to be very, very talented. And they bring back all 22 starters. Yes. Uh, the Chiefs, Patrick Mahomes, Tyree Kill, they're still going to be very good. The Colts is a team that I think can do very well in the AFC, possibly make the AFC championship game, potentially make the Super Bowl because they got a really good defense – uh, who's the quarterback? Carson Wentz. Yeah, um, that Wentz. might be a concern for them. The quarterback play. Um, who's the back? Is it? Go ahead, Sai. I do say when we get closer time, we should bring on our friends from uh, D Line Sports who cover yeah. I was on their podcast. We should bring them on the talk Colts football and kind of have a look around the NFL. We might do that actually. Yeah, so I think the Colts has a very good chance to win in the AFC and making the Super Bowl. Or at least winning the or going to the AFC Championship because they got very talented defense, they got good offense. Um, yeah, that could be a surprise team in the AFC for me. And then obviously so the that, Packers. Are, are you are you starting to get that football itch yet? I'm more excited for college football than NFL. Yeah, I'm gonna be honest. I, I love Packer game day, so I, I love college too. Obviously, Kentucky's gonna be good this year, but we'll get into that as we get closer. Moving on, Peyton, as we start to wind down the show, of course, we promised the UFC 264 review. Let's jump right into it, Peyton, at the main event. The biggest card in UFC history. Did I haven't seen the official number, but I know they're projecting <coughs> over 2 million buys. The trilogy fight between Dustin the Diamond Poirier and Connor the Notorious McGregor. And it ends after the first round, but not like you would think. It ends because Connor snapped his ankle. Dustin mm-hmm. wins by TKO, Dr. Stoppage. It, I'm not going to go crazy into it, but let's just break the fight down. Connor comes out, leg kick heavy to start the fight, landing some good shots with the leg. Really, you could see Dustin being bothered by him, but they had a couple wild exchanges. Dustin, in my opinion, got the better of Connor, pushed him up against, they found themselves up against the cage. Connor drops to go for an ill-timed guillotine. He had it in tight at one point, but not tight enough. Dustin got himself on the cage, got in top position, proceeded for about the next three minutes to rain down ground and pound. I don't think they were as damaging as maybe some of the announcers wanted you to believe. Connor defended some of the elbows well, even though some of them did sneak through. Um, but Dustin definitely had top control. The last 20, 30 seconds, they wound up back on their feet. Connor threw a couple more kicks, threw another punch, and then when he stepped back, the ankle shattered, broke his uh, fibula into the lower ankle area. 
really anticlimactic. If you had to score the round, Dustin probably definitely won the round. But Connor had his moments. I'd have liked to see it play out if Connor was healthy to see what would happen. But I think that maybe he knew that the ankle was compromised and that's why he shot for the guillotine. But he should have, if not, he should have broke and kept that thing standing because going to the ground against a black belt like Dustin Poirier was not the answer. Real quick on that, um, talking about Connor's ankle. He even said after the fight, and Dana said it, um, he said, ask Dana and ask everybody in the camp. Coming into that fight, he actually had some micro fractures in his ankle, the same ankle that he that snapped in that fight. So he was already injured coming into this fight. Um, and I guess, the obviously, the leg kicks to Dustin, because he was hitting them very hard. And Dustin said he checked them. He might have checked one. Most most of the times he didn't check them. Connor was hitting him right in the leg, right in the meat of the leg. And it was doing damage to Dustin, I can tell. Um, so maybe that's the reason with the guillotine. But also, I don't know, because here's what Cook said, because obviously he's a trained jiu-jitsu I'm calling – he said he, he don't want to be called an expert. Damn what, I'm calling him an expert. He's a brown belt, almost a black belt. He's an expert to me. I'm going to ask him if he wants to send in the clip so I can pin in here. But if he doesn't, that's fine. But here's what he said. I was like, I don't know why Connor went for that choke. He had them positioned, but Cook said, and I quote, he shouldn't have fell back on it. Forced Dustin to hand fight out and then circle back to the middle of the ring. And I agree 100%. Connor, even though he's not bad on the ground, because you talked about it. What happens if Connor shoots on Dustin? Dustin gets one of those guillotines on him because Dustin's very good on that. He's a black belt in jiu-jitsu, um, has very experience with that. I just don't know why Connor fell back on it. And Dustin said something that Connor was grabbing his gloves. That might have been true. But what people don't realize, when Dustin, when Connor fell back on that guillotine to try to lock it in, Dustin had his damn foot inside the fucking He did. Cage. Yeah, and yeah, I was wondering. I was you wondering. Can't. I was like, he was standing vertical. I was like, how the fuck is that even possible? He's standing vertical without yeah. moving. And yeah, like, that wouldn't fuck. allow Connor to get both, uh, get his uh, other arm under Connor uh, to really get position for the guillotine choke. And I was just wondering. I looked back and I was like, this motherfucker has his damn foot inside the damn cage and he wants to complain about Connor grabbing his gloves. I'm a fan of Dustin. Even though this happened, and all the stuff Connor said after the fight, I'm still a fan of Dustin. I think he's a very talented individual. He's a very fun fighter to watch. Um, I respect him highly. He's fun to watch. So I don't have any beef towards Dustin. What Connor said after the fight, though, if this went to the second round, I think Connor would have stopped him, like I predicted. I really do. I think Connor would have connected with him, hit him with the left hand because he was hitting him a little bit. Um, but I think if they had another wire exchange like that, Connor was going to clip him and he was going to hurt him hard and Connor was going fi- to finish him. But obviously, it didn't play like that. And the shit that Connor said after the fight, I'm a huge Connor fan. I get the whole promotion type deal. I know Ronda Rousey's praised him on his on Twitter about it. You just broke your ankle and you still have your you still have the courage to promote the next fight. Yeah, that's cool. But the shit they were saying, making the personal, I don't like that, Connor. You mentioned Connor being pissed off and all this stuff. I don't like pissed off Connor. I like the Connor that was fighting Eddie Alvarez, who was still talking shit, but he never made a personal. I like the Connor that was fighting um, even Chad Mendez, still talking shit, never made a personal. The two times he's really made a personal someone, Khabib and now Dustin, he's lost. Yeah. 
I don't yeah, like I'm pissed off Connor. I'm with you. I don't mind pissed off Connor, but I just don't like the fact that like he didn't have to bring the wife into it. And he's reaching. And Dustin even said in the, the press conference pre-fight, he said, man, he said, used to be funny, but now it's whack. And it kind of is. It he, is. He, he's kind of like holding on to this because she DM'd him. But the truth be told, she was probably trying to DM him to like thank him because they thought that they were getting that donation, to be honest with you. And Connor's trying to run with it. Yeah, I don't know. I'm a huge Connor fan, too. And I do like Dustin. Um, I think Dustin's kind of a slime ball, too, that people don't talk about. I think he has his moments that he can be a real slime ball. But Connor, though, that was that was low. I what I grimaced when he kept saying all that shit. I'm like, dude, come on. So I don't know. So where do we go from here? Obviously, Dustin's fighting for the title. Dana said that once Connor heals up, they'll see. But there's probably gonna be a fourth fight. If Dustin wins the title, Connor comes back and healthy and can actually fight and wants to. Connor's still gonna get a title shot because they're gonna run that back for the fourth time. But I just think. For one, I don't know if we'll ever see Connor back. I know he says it, but I don't know if we'll ever see him back. I think the good days of Connor are way behind us. I think we're way behind any sort of Connor being an elite fighter anymore. It's kind of you started kind of get used to it, basically, that he gave us a great couple of years. He was like a lightning bolt. But the reality is, I think pound for pound, Dustin's a bad matchup for Connor. Yeah. I think Connor matches up better with. Um, Guys like, uh, oh, hell, I can picture him. I can't even think of his name right now. He's one of the top lightweights. Khabib beat him in his final fight. Uh, Justin oh, Gaethje. Gaethje, yeah. I think Connor matches up better with him than Dustin because Gaethje will get in a wild brawl with you. Gaethje has great wrestling but chooses to stand and bang. And yeah, he's got that crazy power. But Connor is so slick and so smart mostly that he would pick, in my opinion, he'd pick Gaethje apart. He fights better against Gaethje than he does Dustin. Dustin's just so damn well-rounded, tight, tight boxing. You can't take him to the ground. He's tough as nails. That's a bad matchup for Connor, just in my opinion. It's not like it used to be. So I, Dustin is going to go. I'm, I said it in the preview. I still stand by it. They're going to fight by the end of the year. Dustin's going to win the lightweight title. He's going to take it from um, Carlos Oliveira. Uh, Oliveira. Oliveira, thank you. And if Connor, whenever Connor's ready and healthy, that they're going to run that maybe next year or the year after. But Dustin's going to win the title and Connor's going to keep making millions of dollars. Here's the thing. And it sucks to say this. I've been watching a lot of old school Connor highlights when he was fighting Aldo and even the two Nate Diaz fights and the Eddie Alvis fight, even the build up towards the Formato fight which that was all entertaining, watching Connor do his thing. It was hella fun watching him. Um, he started to become a parody of what he used to be, in my opinion. Um, doing all this stuff. He tried to be Mr. Nice Guy, even though it, he starched uh, Cowboy Cerrone, um, knocked him out with the first 30 seconds of the fight, won in round one with a TKO or KO. Um, he tried the nice guy shit against uh, Dustin, didn't really work, got beat, got knocked out, and then all of a sudden he's going to change and start talking shit again. To me, I, I don't like Khabib, but I even I'm going to have to agree with him on this one. It's like it's like Connor trying to – it's like fake Connor to me. Like he's trying to talk shit now all of a sudden because that Mr. Nice Guy stuff didn't work, and now he's trying to become what he used to be. To me, he's just becoming a parody, and uh, I don't know if he can beat guys inside the top ten. You mentioned the Gaethje fight. Gaethje, I mean – he does love, he does have good wrestling. He does love to stand and bang. 
he torched uh, Tony Ferguson. He torched Tony Ferguson in a fight. He had moments against Khabib fight. I still think that's really a bad matchup for Conor. I don't know if Conor can beat anyone inside the top 10. I think Conor's run at the top of the mountain, being on top of lightweight division, welterweight, featherweight, I think that Conor is over with. Yeah, the last thing I'm going to say on Conor, I agree with about the parody. I think that Conor died, and great on him. I, go get your money. He's a he's him and his family are set for generations. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Um, but that Connor died the night that he signed the contract, or the night he got paid for Floyd Mayweather. Floyd. Because he believed everything he was saying. I think this Connor now likes to still talk like that Connor, but I don't think he believes it. No. I, even if he says he does, I still, you just don't see it. He says a lot of right stuff. He's almost like a politician now. He says all the stuff you want to hear, but he's not the same person. So moving on to the rest of the main event card, um, the, you know, five fights, four of them were, three of them were really good. One had a good first four minutes, four and a half minutes until the, the ankle snapped. One was a stinker that should have been good. That was the co-main event. Gilbert Burns beats Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, unanimous decision. Just a lot of circling, trying to figure each other out. Gilbert dominated on the ground. Stephen had a moment there in the second, third round where he had one nice head kick that kind of rocked Gilbert, but Gilbert got it back to the ground and just put a master class on him. It was pretty boring, but Gilbert um, gets himself back right into the title picture. And then Stephen Thompson's days, at least at welterweight, are done at uh, being a top contender. He's 40 years old now. So he's been fun to watch, but yeah, it, it is was what it was. Gilbert did what he had to do to win and, you know, Stephen can never, Wonderboy can never really get off. So that was no. kind of a boring one. Yep, I agree. I'll tell you uh, what, what, go ahead. No, 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 I was, was going to say that he called out uh, Jorge Masvidal for the fight. Yeah, that, that could be an interesting one. Yeah, Jorge doesn't have anything to do. Yeah. Uh, here's one that wasn't boring, though. Tie to Avasa. <laughs> out Greg Hardy. Knocks him the fuck out. Uh, inside the first round, after Greg had rocked him forward. Yeah, I was going to mention they, that, yeah. they, had a, they had a crazy exchange. Greg pops him. If I remember, it's just like a simple jab. Yeah. And it, Ty started getting on wobbly legs, and Greg carelessly ran in to go finish. And when he did, Ty just fucking caught him, and he folded up. He flatlined him. Yeah, he folded up, and then he did a shoey on the cage afterwards. He did multiple shoeys. He did a shoey in the cage. He did a shoey with the fan heading out of the cage or heading out of the arena. Um, he's a fun one to watch. He can bang. Um, yeah, and he even said, he said, I'm the last person you want to bang with. Yeah. So, yeah, that was actually, that was very entertaining. After Greg Hardy walked in, I was like, oh, shit, he might actually win this. Um, but then Tuivasa, he closed in to try to finish him. Tuivasa said, fuck you, and knocked his ass clean out. So, yeah, that was fun to watch. And the only women's fight on the main card, if you remember, we didn't preview it because we didn't really know either women. But I tell you what, Irene Aldana, she looked good. She KO'd Yana Knutskia um, after Yana had a couple good moments early. But Irene took her to the ground and beat the fucking brakes off of her to KO, TKO her in the first round. Yeah, I actually didn't watch too much of this fight. I actually caught the end of it and seen the finish, but I didn't even know it was a short fight anyways. It was ended in round one. I didn't even watch too much of it, but good and for him. The, the opener, the fight of the night. Fight of the fucking night, without a Sugar, doubt. Sugar Sean O'Malley 
going up against his last-minute replacement underdog from the regional scene from Massachusetts by way of his family heritage in Portugal. Yeah, Chris Moutinho, let me tell you, Sugar Sean set a record by hitting, I think this dude got hit like 177 times in three rounds. In the face. Set a fucking record. He got hit with 177 punches in the damn face, and he was like a fucking zombie. He walked through everything. You could see Sean O'Malley is like, and he's even said it a little bit afterwards, talking to Pat McAfee. He's like, what the fuck? He said, I kept looking up. People thought I was tired. He goes, not really. He goes, I was just seeing how much time I had left. He goes, he even did the, he dedicated to the Phoenix Suns. He fucking, um, he did the between the legs, fade away. And dude, he would tag Moutinho and he could never get his feet set to land a big power punch. O'Malley, I thought, looked good. I thought O'Malley's combinations, stiff jab, fighting off the back foot. But he had to keep fighting off the back foot because Moutinho would get – he was like the rock – not rock him, stock him. He was like the old school, like, boppers where he'd fill up with air and you'd punch up some bitch as hard as you could and it'd come straight back up at you. That's what Chris Moutinho was. O'Malley would hit him with a three-piece, pop, pop, pop. And his, you would literally see his green hair and his head go, like, jar back, like, oh, oh, like Homer Simpson. And he did keep fucking coming forward. And he had a couple moments, I'm not going to lie, when he wouldn't go down, he, he never hurt O'Malley. But no, there was never. a couple of them, like, hooks and straight rights that it looked like it connected pretty good. I'm like, oh, my God, he might steal this. And, of course, he got officially um, – he got a, a four- or five-piece combo straight to the dome that ended it with, like, 20 seconds to go. He was still on his feet. But O'Malley could have easily – I think he was finally softening him up. He probably was going to finish him before the bell ended. But I think everybody wanted to see the fight go the full distance because the Chris kid deserved it. But, man, you talk about losing but still being a winner afterwards. That kid has got himself a fucking contract, I'd imagine. He's got a whole legion of fans. One fight of the night, got 75K. That's a great story to see. And he got his ass pieced up. He just would not die. Shit, I'm trying to find this tweet that Matino retweeted, and I can't What's find Sean it. What did Sean O'Malley say after the, during his first word? Oh, he said he's like a bad fight. motherfucker. He said a bad motherfucker. I, he, he made a fan out of me, 100%. Like, that whole fight was the most wildest fight I think I've seen pretty much ever. I mean, I've seen great fights back and forth. Nate Diaz versus Conor McGregor, too. So one of the greatest fights I've ever seen in my life. That was back and forth. Both guys had moments. This fight, it was... As one-sided as, as it can get, but Sean O'Malley can, just could not pit him away. He kept coming no matter what. And Sean O'Malley, Sugar Sean, was dropping some bombs on Chris Martino. And he still kept coming. And he was talking shit the whole entire time. He went from, and I, I'm going to try to find it real quick, but he went from working like 80 hours a week or something like that. As a painter. As a painter to chasing his dreams in the UFC and fighting for like four minutes and 30 seconds. And now he's made like over 75K in one night. It's wild. Like it was a cool inspiration story. And um, the, yeah, Hope Dean stopped it early. I get the whole brain damage stuff. Like he took so much brain damage in that fight. He took a lot of beating. But even Daniel Cormier and Joe Rogan and even um, Ben Askin said that you let him get his ass whooped for four minutes and 30 seconds with like 20, 30 seconds to go. Just let him go out on his shield. At least he owned the right to go out on his shield the way he was fighting in that fight. 
And he did have some moments in there that I thought, hey, maybe Sugar Sean can get knocked out here. Maybe Chris Martinez has something for him, be a huge upset. But it was wild. He made a fan out of me. I'm a Chris Martino fan after that. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Hopefully he gets himself another fight inside the organization. Um, but yeah, it was a fun night of fights. Terrible ending of what happened. We didn't get a definitive winner. It does set up a fourth fight. You know, the money's still there because, you know, people, uh, now it's going to be even more heated because people really fucking hate Connor now. So we'll see what happens. But that's your UFC roundup. Let's uh, real quick. Well, wait, Chris Martino said this on his Twitter. Um, he says, and I quote, you're going to have to kill me to get me out of there. There's no reason to stop that fight. That's what Chris Martino said. And he proved it. So, But let's go ahead and finish this show up, Peyton. We're right at the two-hour mark. Let's finish it up like we normally do with the racing roundup. Not a whole lot I want to talk about. Other than I got one big question. Shannon Babb, over, since the last episode we did, gets us 100 career summer nationals victory tying in with the legendary billy moyer but here's my question i've i've been i know bobby pierce has got like eight wins on tour and i does anybody care about the summer nationals anymore because i know it's, it's so long the car counts aren't near what they used to be as far as touring drivers it used to be special it was like three weeks four weeks at the most and you had Billy Moyer, Bill Fry, Rick Auckland, John Gill, Donnie O'Neill, Shannon Babb, et cetera, et cetera. Bloomquist would join in at times, et cetera, would be at these races. Now it's like you'll look at some of these fucking places, and it's like, oh, they've got 19 cars, and your only good ones are Babb, or sorry, not Babb, Pierce, Shirley, Ashton Winger. It's like, does anybody really still care about the Summer Nationals anymore? And the, sadly, I don't think – I don't. No, I don't pay attention to it at all. It's I think too I'm, long. Yeah, I think at Brownstown, they only had like 18 cars there. And a couple of – I think probably like five or six of them was actually crates. So, yeah, I don't care about it. I agree, it's too long. Some of these tracks they're going to, those tracks I've never even heard of before in my life. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. The, the Summer Nationals is way too long. It should really not that be that long. Was like a 30 race schedule or some shit like that? Something stupid. It really honestly should probably be cut down to like 12, in my opinion. Nah, 12's too short. I, I'm okay with doing like do 19 or 20 inside like 24 days. Do like three weeks and get the fuck over with. Like it used to be. But yeah. finishing the show out, Peyton. King double King's Royal, like we did for the Dirt Light Model Dream at Eldora this past weekend. The first dream or the first King's Royal winner because the rain fucked everything up. So they had to run both of them yesterday, Saturday. The first one in the afternoon was Tyler Courtney taking a 175 grand. Kyle Larson flips mm, yeah. during the day. Gets his shit together though. And young money. Kyle motherfucking Larson takes home the 37th annual Kings Royal. 175 grand. I know he's a NASCAR star and it don't mean a whole lot to him, but the win does. And especially flipping earlier in the day, um, he, he was able to pull away from late from Sheldon Hodden's child, Peyton, young money. It's so cool to see a guy like that so passionate about dirt racing still. And he takes home one of the absolute crown jewels in all of dirt racing. Dude, if he can race every night, he would. And multiple different cars, whether it's NASCAR, late models, sprint cars, mini sprints, doesn't matter. He'd race anything if he could, every night. Um, 
I, I do I do like how it lost Santa. It doesn't surprise me that you won the Kings Royal at all. When I seen it, I didn't watch I didn't watch it because I was watching the Brownstown race, um, the Bobby Wilson Memorial race at Brownstown. So I was watching that. Um, but yeah, it didn't surprise me when I seen the headlines that he won. Uh, good for him. Um, in my opinion, I think you can argue either Davenport or even I guess Brandon Overton. I one of those two guys is the best dirt lane model driver in the world right now. Kyle Lawson's just the best driver, period. Like, dirt racer, it doesn't matter. Like, he's just the best right now, and nobody can touch him because he can win in anything, really. Yep, so. and he's proven he's proven that. And lastly, uh, my favorite sprint car driver, it was his final go-around for the Kings Royal. He's retiring at the end of the year. Um, he's been on his retirement tour. The legendary wild child himself, Jack Codden's child. Uh, so congratulations to you, sir. Um, you know, hopefully you can get you a win or two before the season's over with. Maybe you can go over there and win Knoxville one last time. And, but it's been a crazy, crazy, tremendous, uh, successful career. So we salute you, sir. Salute Kyle Larson. And with that, we wrap up episode four of Sports Talk with JV. I hope you guys enjoyed all this talk. And we'll see you in episode five, probably later in the week. Have more updates on MLB. Maybe we have an NBA champion, Gold Cup quarterfinals, and everything in between. Thank you guys for joining, or thank you guys for listening. For Peyton, I'm Josh Burton. We will catch you guys down the road with episode five. See you then. Peace.